I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we continue to follow Job further down the spiral. I'm Aaron Bishop, here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey. And today we're in Job chapters 18 and 19. So I got a question for you. Who was the shortest man to ever live? Mm, I don't know. Bildad, the shoe height. <laughs> Oh, brother. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I probably should have saved that for later just because uh, we're going to need a little bit of a pick-me-up later in this episode because just like the previous weeks, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of progress made in these two chapters. And once again, Job is attacked for not properly bearing witness about God or about his own failures. And once and, again, and accused of being wicked and accused right. of being evil. And once again, Job defends himself and tries to make the case that he is not guilty. And uh, it just, just this entire episode, it really reflects what it feels like to be caught in grief, to be caught in what we call PTSD today, that yep. post traumatic stress where you're on this uh, record player that just keeps going round and round and round and round. The accusing thoughts keep coming in and you keep having to stand up against those accusing thoughts and the accusing thoughts are there again, or the, the trauma of the events just keeps circling around in your head where you're unable to deal with it or you're unable to, to process it. And you keep trying to, no, there's no out. There's yeah, no there's out. no out. And uh, it just keeps going further and further and further. When I was uh, in high school, there was this album that I loved to listen to. It fascinated me. And I don't recommend anyone actually listen to this. It's terrible in its lyrics. It's terrible in its message. But it just fascinated me. But it's called The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails. Blech. Yeah, right. Uh, it, was, it fascinated me because the album tells the progress of someone who is committing suicide. Who, who's edging t further, closer and closer and closer to suicide. And so it talks of this complete disconnect from, from life, this disconnect from rules, this disconnect from order, but it's, it's this downward spiral that just keeps going down and down and down. And further and further you get into the album, the more and more depressing it gets as the themes get more and more dark until it just ends with, I feel nothing, and so I'm hurting myself in order just to feel something. Mm. And that's where it ends, and then it just kind of 
tapers off at the very end. But it just fascinated me this, this progression, uh, because I'm not a person who's ever really struggled with suicide. I'm not a person who's ever really just struggled with full onset depression. I've had moments of depression, mm-hmm. but it's not something I've struggled with. And so getting this picture into the, the life of someone who is struggling with depression, it just caught my imagination and it caught my mind and it, and it helped me to kind of see some of the darker parts of the human experience that I'd never experienced before. It's a little bit like when I read the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a, a Russian who was thrown into the Gulag in Siberia for 15 years. And it's his experience and it's the experiences that he collected of people who had lived through the Russian Gulag system. And just the depravity of the government as they put people into these terrible situations and human life just became worthless. Hmm. And experience and living became worthless and just became this drudgery of existence day after day after day. And uh, I kind of feel like Job is, is there. He's on that downward spiral. He definitely is is experiencing some of the the darker sides of of humanity. He's he's finding no rest, he's finding no peace. He can't even call out to God because he feels like God's the one that's done this. So right. even when he does call out to God, God's not there for him right, right now. Right. And all of his friends just continue to blame him and he's like, "Look, I have no idea what I've done wrong. He he can't. There's literally nowhere to turn. There's nowhere that he can find any relief. Right, and and that is one of the big themes that's expressed in these particular chapters is Job's loneliness. Mm-hmm. He has no one that he can turn to. He's got no defender. He's got no defense against the accusations, and he is all alone. As the world, as God, his friends, his family have all turned against him. And he is all alone in the midst of abject, utter, not just even emotional pain, but truly physical pain. Ruin. Yeah, utter ruin. ruin. And yet he continues to survive. And at the end, it is is beautiful. The end of chapter 19. Right. So let's go ahead and let's read these chapters, and then we will come back and we will discuss them. Job 18 and 19. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, saying, How long until you end these words? Consider, and then we will talk. Why are we regarded as beasts and stupid in your eyes? You who tear yourself to pieces in anger, will the earth be abandoned for your sake? Or must a rock be moved from its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire does not shine. The light in his tent grows dark. The lamp above him goes out. His vigorous stride is shortened, and his own scheme throws him down. For he is cast into a net by his feet. He wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A rope is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him lies on the path. 
On every side, terrors frighten him and harass his every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for his fall. It eats away pieces of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Nothing of his dwells in his tent. Brimstone is scattered over his dwelling. Below his roots dry up and above his branches wither. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the land. He is driven from light into darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where he once dwelt. People of the West are appalled at his fate. People of the East are seized with horror. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. Such is the place of one who does not know God. Job responded, saying, How long will you torment my soul and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. You attack me shamelessly. But even if it is true that I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and prove my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and encircled me with his net. Though I cry out violence, I get no response. I cry for help, but there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass and has shrouded my path in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side until I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me and he considers me among his enemies. His troops advance together. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He removed my brothers far from me. My acquaintances are only strangers to me. My relatives have gone away and my close friends have forgotten me. My house guests and my maidservants consider me a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call my servant, but he does not reply, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I am loathsome to my children. Even young children despise me. When I stand, they speak against me. All my close friends despise me. Those I love have turned against me. My bones cling to my skin and my flesh. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me like God? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written, that they were recorded in a scroll, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in stone forever. Yet I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on earth. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not a stranger. My heart grows weak within me. If you say how we will pursue him, since the root of the matter is found in him, then you should fear the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know judgment. So what do you remember about Bildad previously? Was Bildad the one that was, let me talk, let me talk, let me talk? No, I'm pretty sure that was so far. Okay. With Bildad, he 
appealed to tradition. He appealed to the fathers. That was his his whole shtick. We know this is true because this is what has been passed down to us about God and about how the world works. And so we can know that this is true. And so when we get to Bildad this time, we see a very similar thing. He is recalling his tradition, and he is using it to attack Job. Because he's heard Job defend himself repeatedly over and over and over again against these claims from three different people now, from three different aspects, three different directions of how Job is wrong, and Job continues to maintain his innocence. And Bildad's had enough of it. Mm-hmm. He is he is done with hearing Job defend himself, basically defending himself. He's not even so much upset with Job maligning God or yeah. disparaging God. Yeah. He's just upset with Job defending himself. And his his entire chapter is all about Job, look at where you're at. Take a look around. This is not the circumstances of a person who's done good. This is a very honor-shame mm-hmm. speech. He feels that that Job has shamed them. Mm, he starts yeah. out with, "Are why are we regarded as beasts and stupid in your eyes? Mm, yeah. And so he feels that Job has shamed them, him specifically. And so he spends the next... 20 verses, tearing Job down, bringing him down to size and saying, how dare you put us in our place when you're sitting here in an ash heap? You're the one that's the problem, not us. Right. Unfortunately, that is an easy place for people to kind of go. I think when they're trying to help their friend through something they don't understand. Trying to help them through grief, trying to help them through shame, trying to help them through a past, uh, past events that have happened to them that you don't even know the full extent of. And you think you've got all the answers figured out. Mm-hmm. And they keep telling you, no, 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 no. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And it's real easy for the friend who's trying to help to then turn to get frustrated, get frustrated, and to begin to go on the attack as well right. against this person who's already in pain. Uh, it is—it's unfortunately all too common with people who attempt to help those who are in grief, the close friends of someone who is hurting, and who who want to help this person and want to help bring them out of this dark. This dark and dreary place. I think Bildad has stopped wanting to help as yeah. much at this point. That the help is gone. He's done with help. Right. He wants to put Job in his place. He wants Job to admit his fault. And and he wants to be there for it. Right. The heart of help is where it starts. Right. But then when it doesn't actually help, then it becomes this, well, fine, just get what you deserve. 
You're not tearing, you're not bringing me down with you. Mm-hmm. You deserve this. This is not happening for no reason. This is not happening because you're righteous. This is happening because you're an evil person. Right. You're not righteous. I mean, uh, look at verse 16 through the end of the chapter. He's really describing Job's situation. Right. His roots below dry up and his branches cut off above. The remembrance of him, his children, perishes from the earth, and he has no name on the street, so he's got no reputation anymore. He has been completely cut off. They thrust him from the light into darkness and chase him out of the world. He leaves no offspring or descendants among his people, nor any survivor of his dwelling. Uh, in the ancient Near East, this was a huge sign of someone's unrighteousness, was to have their family line cut off, to have it end with them. Uh, if your family line ended with you, it was because you were unrighteous. Uh, that's the whole sort of underlying story behind the judgment on Korah in uh, Leviticus chapter 16. It's this Korah and his household were all cut off because they had stood up against God and, and started uh, facilitated this rebellion against Moses and against God. Mm-hmm. And even though we know later some of Korah's children survived because they wrote some of the Psalms, the way that Leviticus steeps it is that his entire household is gone. He's wiped off. His family line is cut off. We What's see the, the same thing with... Uh, with um, Ruth and, and Boaz. With Ruth and Boaz, but we see the same thing with Achan when he takes of the spoils of Jericho. His entire family is cut off. It's a shaming act to have your entire family cut off. And so... When Bildad is describing, he's leaving no offspring or descendants among his people, nor any survivors in his dwellings. He's pointing to the fact that Job has no children, and if he was to die today, he would be completely cut off from the land of the living. There would be no remembrance of him in the earth, no one to carry on his name. And that was how ancient people saw immortality, was to live on through your children. That was why when you died, you were gathered to your fathers. It was about the family line, and that was where they found their strength and security. It's where they found, um, yeah, like you said, their immortality. Their name would live on. Their, Their legacy would live on through their children. It's the same thing with being gathered to Abraham's bosom. It's the same... Same type of language as you're going to be with your forefathers and you're leaving your children behind to carry on your legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's the, the proverb, train up a child in the way he shall go and he shall not depart from it. Uh, you train him up in your image and he will carry on that image and not depart from the image that you've, that you've given to him of yourself. That was the same kind of story of the daughters of Zelophehad mm-hmm. because he had no sons to right. carry on his family line to carry on his family name and so they said it's no it's no fault of his own that he has no sons right he was not shamed he was not cut off let and god honored that and gave the daughter's inheritance to carry on that family name right it's the same thing with the man who dies without having children and leverite marriage right the brother of the husband goes into his wife and gives her children uh, to be born in the name of the brother, so that the brother's not cut off from the land. So he has a legacy to continue on, because if that legacy's cut off in their minds, he's gone forever. He's been judged and found wanting and no longer to be seen in the earth. 
So that that's a huge thing here. But then uh, continuing on in verse 20, uh, those who are in the West are astonished at his day, and those who are in the East are frightened. Indeed, such are the dwellings of the perverse, and this is the place of him who does not know God. He's a pretty fine point on that one. He is saying, Job, all of these things are happening to you, and it's proof that you don't really know God, and you're not turning away from your ignorance of God and listening to wisdom that's coming from all of your friends and counselors and these wise men and the tradition of our elders and our doctrine that we've built up and all of these things that we've built up around who God is. You're te- calling the entire world wrong right now. Mm-hmm. And it's all just serves as proof that you're wrong. And again, it just, it just, uh, highlights that point that that's, that's probably the most expansive part of this book is God appearing in a way that we are not familiar with. And God allowing appearing God not just in a way we're not familiar with, a way contrary to what we think he can appear. Right. There was a discussion that was going on today on uh, the nature of good and evil on online. And it's amazing to me how many people say, well, God is incapable of doing evil things. And true to a degree. But it really depends on how you define evil. Because Job here, Job isn't receiving a just punishment from God. He's not. He didn't. The things that are happening to him, they're evil. It's evil. It's evil. Right. Anyone, anywhere would say it's evil, except for we know the long term picture, there is good that comes from this evil. But. God says he brings evil. Right. Isaiah 45, when he's uh, revealing himself to King Cyrus, the Zoroastrian king of the Persians, um, who believed that there was a good God and there was an evil God, and that there was going to be this giant war for uh, creation at the end of time where good and evil were going to fight for each other. When God reveals himself through Isaiah uh, a century and a half before Cyrus even is alive, and he addresses him by name, he comes right out and says it is, I create peace and I create evil. The word is rods. It is evil. And it's a huge word that has a ton of applications in in Hebrew. But there are some things that really appear evil. God knows good and evil. Um, Right there in Genesis chapter 3, they are like us. They know good good and evil. Right. And we are the ones that put the moral judgment on the word evil. Right. The word evil is very much like the word calamity. Mm -hmm. It is... Subjective. Yes, it's very subjective. And we have this clause in all of our insurance policies, acts of God. Right. That, you know, it's... Those are evil. You know, they... From from a earthly human perspective, they are evil. Uh, you know, a tree falls on your house and totally destroys your house. Or uh, a hurricane comes through and wipes out an entire city. Or 
I mean, these are evil things. But that's, but they're not morally repugnant either. And even the destruction of Job's family, while evil, it's not sinful. And I think that we as humans equate sinful and evil right. as one. Right. And that, I don't believe that God can cause sin, right. can sin in any way. That is, That's a really that is good point. Im, that is completely opposite to who he is. But evil is not sin. Right. And so that, that gets to the point of moral evil. What, what do we consider moral? Um, and a lot of people, and that's where so much of this breaks down in my mind, is we see God doing things here that could very well be considered murder uh, of he's Job's family. Them. He's yeah. allowing, well, he, in essence, is commanding it. Go, yeah. take him out. Yeah. Touch every, kill everyone. Just don't take his life. Do whatever the heck you want. Have at it. And the sovereign decree is coming down to a servant of the king in the in the image of Satan, who is then carrying out God's decree. So it is as if God is doing it. Mm-hmm. And not, it's not murder. It, it and it's not, not murder because God does decree life and death. Right. But it is. It's his. It's his domain. Right. He has the right to d- to order the death of someone. He has that authority. Right. It is in his hand. And if he chooses to do so, we do not get to say he's wrong. True, true. And I'm not trying to say that he was wrong to do this. I'm just trying to say that we would call that moral evil. We would call that... And the point I'm getting at is that this is kind of where the entire discussion on morals breaks apart in my mind. Mm. is because if God can do stuff like this, then it's not about good and evil. As we as we conceptualize it, as we always want to turn it into the classic fight of good and evil, light and dark. And mm-hmm. it's, it's about life and death. Because what is happening here, yeah, some people are dying, but in the end... It's for a greater purpose of life. And it is for a purpose that lasts throughout time. Right. This is one of the oldest books written. And so we're talking 6,000 years ago. And it is still, it is still having an effect today. Yeah, it's probably closer to 4,500 years old, but yeah, it, it is still having an effect today. Uh, in fact, it is probably one of the most challenging books to get through, not because of the poetry, which is hard enough to read, not because of the repetitive, because again, that's hard enough to read as well, but it's because of what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Because it paints God in a picture that... We don't want to see we him don't, in that Yeah, way. we don't want to allow God to be able to hurt innocent people for reasons that we can't discern or define. Yeah, we want God to be in this perfect little box. Right. He does the good things, only the good things. He can't do anything bad. And 
that's the whole entire point of this book is to show God can do what God will do. Right. And this, the, this entire point, it, we need to allow it to extrapolate some into allowing God to appear in ways that we're not familiar or comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And yet it's still God. Uh, I know I have many Baptist friends who are not comfortable with expressions of the spirit, mm. such as speaking in tongues. Yep. And we'll look on people who don't speak or who speak in tongues and say, well, they're not really saved because that's not the God I know. And, and vice, vice versa. versa. Right, right. It's, it's a totally vice versa. People who speak in tongues who say, well, you have to have tongues in order to be saved. It's the sign of salvation. Both of those are equally wrong. Wrong. But it's God working in different ways for different people. And we have to allow God to do that. Yeah. I I remember a conversation with someone who had a problem with something that we were going through. And this person said, well, God can't ask you to do thus and so. And be, mm-hmm. And it was like, well, why not? Right. Why can't God ask us to do something that's really hard? Right. And and really what it boiled down to was this person was afraid that if God could ask us to give up X, that God might ask them to give him up. to give up X. Right. And he couldn't allow that to be. Right. And, and I think that that is very much what we're dealing with here. Job's friends cannot allow God to be able to do this to Job because if God can do it to Job and Job's the best of all of us, he could absolutely do it to me. Right. There's, there's no one safe at that point. Right. And that is a frightening thought. That is a to terrifying anyone, to everyone, thought. everyone, even today. Yeah. That's a frightening thought. And it, it's shaking them to their core so much that they, their cognitive dissonance will not allow them to entertain the thought that Job is, is innocent. Is innocent. Because it, it can't be, it can't work that way. We, we've got to figure it out. We've got our, our systematic theology, if you will. God's in this box that we've created based on what we know and what's written on what's told and what we, you know, and, and what we've learned. And God can't step out of the side of that box because we know him. And God's, I'll tell you now, God's bigger than any box you can put him in. Right. So continuing on to Job's response, then it's really about his loneliness. Uh, he starts with, how long would you grieve my life and crush me with words? I've, ar- I've already been crushed by the circumstances. I've been crushed by God. Know then that God has overthrown me and surrounded me with his net in verse 6. I've already been crushed. How long will you continue to grieve me and insult me and shamelessly attack me in my grief, saying that I'm wrong? When you don't know my life, you don't know my heart, you don't know what I've done or where I've been, you're only telling me it has to be this way because all you see is the result. But you don't know what came before. 
If you'd asked me this two weeks ago, before any of this happened, you'd have said I was the most righteous man on earth. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm in the dust with nothing to my name, now I'm the most evil man in the earth who needs to repent of all of his many sins. So which is it? The only thing that's changed is my circumstance. Right. And not my heart. And uh, that's so important that we we recognize that, is that people who are going through tough times, they are not necessarily guilty or in need of of repentance. They might just be a very righteous person who is being tested, who is being tried and refined by God's furnace. And we've got to allow for that. And we've got to be there and support through that. And, And I think one thing that I need to hear is that we don't have to defend God to the person in this situation right? who is sitting there in complete agony and wallowing and saying, God is, is hurting me. God is doing this. I have a tendency to say, no, no, it's not God. God's not doing this to you. You know, it, right. and, and, Maybe he is. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're right. But here's the kicker. Even if they're right, it is ultimately for a good purpose. Right. So I was watching the Jordan Peterson roundtable discussion through the book of Exodus the other day. There's only two episodes out right now. It's really good. I I enjoyed it. But at one point... Dennis Prager from Prager U, he comes out and says, you know, I don't understand this Christian idea of suffering is good or that, uh, that suffering ultimately, ultimately leads to good because in my mind, it ends up when you see or experience suffering, you don't fight against it. You just allow it to happen because in the end, it's going to be good. And we don't, we can't. It's a very we Calvinistic approach. In some ways. Um, and it, it's a very, it's a straw man imposition upon the Christian thoughts on suffering. But his, his thought is when we see suffering, we have to stand and fight against it with all of our being, whatever we have. And he's coming from a very Jewish background. And unfortunately, nobody really kind of stood up and said, that's, that's not it at all. Um, and one of the things he, he, kept saying is, you know, the woman who's raped, she's still raped. She's still suffering. She's still hurt. And you can't say that that's good. And no, you can't say that that's good. That's that's the entire point, is that's not good. But it can be redeemed. Yeah. And that's kind of the story of the book of Exodus, is you can't say that Israel's time in slavery was good. But you can say that it was redeemed. Right. To be good. Not that they forgot their history, not that they forgot their slavery, but that it was then used as the reason for why they shouldn't would, behave shouldn't a be way. yeah, shouldn't be oppressing the strangers that are in their midst. Why right. they shouldn't be harming the people or killing people or you know, forcing people to, to unending labor without a break. Because they've been through it. They've experienced it and it is it's Part of the reason for going through it is to give them that heart of compassion towards people who are going through it. Yeah, and 
you know, anyone who has spent a lot of time suffering or a lot of time in pain can see, well, I, I shouldn't say anyone because there's a lot of people who can't, but, but there's a lot of people who spend that time and go, I can now see others in a way that I couldn't before. And I can help others who are going through what I have gone through. And they use it for good. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, you know, if if you spend a lot of time in, in Christian circles with people who have done a lot of suffering, you're going to hear it a lot. Right. But it's not the only purpose of suffering is that so you can help others go through it. It genuinely changes you. It genuinely changes you to be able to appreciate the good. It helps you to be able to appreciate things, even, even some of the bad, because you know how you have grown through the process. Yeah. And, and another thing that going through abject suffering and being at a low point like this does is it gives glory to God when you come out of it. Right. Because if you can be in something that's just absolutely terrible in utter darkness with no way out and God can bring you out of it to the point where you're not controlled by your, your damaging past. Uh, I mean, uh, an example of this is, uh, people who are, who have gone through satanic ritual abuse. Uh, you can go on YouTube and you can look at, Testimony after testimony after testimony of people who were subjected to satanic ritual abuse as children who were brought up in satanic churches and, and just surrounded by the darkest evil having it inflicted upon them. And God brings them out and redeems them from it. Right. And the story that they have and the, the freedom that God is able to give them from this abject darkness, it gives glory to God. And that's, yes, it teaches us, it grows us, it builds us, it makes us stronger and more able to stand, but it gives God glory too, that he is capable and able to heal, to bring about right. change, yes. which is to a world that's hurting or to people who are in grief is a message they need to hear, mm -hmm. is that where you're at now doesn't have to be your forever. God can bring you out of it and he can redeem this situation. Even this darkness can be redeemed for your good, for his good, and for the good of the world. And that is exactly where we see Job right. take it at the end of chapter 19. Before we get there, though, real quick, I, one thing that I wanted to, actually two things that I wanted to point out. Verse 21 and 22, Job makes an appeal to his friends where he says, show grace to me, show grace to me. Oh, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me like God does? And you're not satisfied with my flesh. He's looking for support in his friends and he's not finding it. And his heart is crying out. You are my closest friends. I need your support right now. And you're not giving it. In, in fact, you're turning against me just the same way that God has turned against me. And this entire world has turned against me, but I need you to show me grace right now. Because mm -hmm. even if I am wrong in all that I'm saying, 
I need you to show me grace right now because of the depths of despair that I'm in right now. Right. And that is something we have to do as friends of those who are suffering. We have to be willing to extend grace to them, to extend compassion and kindness and mercy to them. Because in their darkness, they don't see the light. And while we see the light, it's so hard to get it to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something I don't think you can. You can't really carry a torch into that situation and hand it off to them. You can counsel. You can comfort. And as we started in the very beginning, you can just say, it will get easier. That's really all that I can promise. But then uh, verse 23, as I was reading through it, I actually laughed out loud. (laughs) Verse 23. And verse 24, because Job says, Oh, that my words were written down, and oh, that they were inscribed in a book, engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Done. (laughs) Done and and done, done. Job. You got your (laughs) wish. It is right here. We're reading it now, 3,500 years later. We are reading your words. You did it. (laughs) And it, it just made me laugh out loud because... Job's wish is is what we're studying right now. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things that I really wanted to point out before we kind of got to the end here. So verse 25 then. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about how when you go through just a living hell and you've been there for a really long time, it changes you and it helps you to see that your life will eventually give glory to God. And that's where he comes back to. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. And even after my skin has been destroyed and my f- in my flesh, I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes, not a stranger. My heart grows weak within me. It's absolutely gorgeous where he goes. He says, no, I recognize that regardless of how horrible this is, my Redeemer lives. I will be redeemed. Right. And and he's pointing back to God is persecuting me, but he's also going to redeem me from this. Yeah. And he's, he's also pointing out the, the folly of the idea that, well, you don't have any kids, so you're cut off from the earth. And Job's saying, no, no, no. If I were to die after my skin has been struck off, then I'll see God in the flesh. You know, well, what? You're not, you don't have flesh. How are you going to see God in the flesh? This is very prophetic and yeah. supernatural. Right. Yeah. Job is really pointing out that. Death isn't the end, guys. We'll see God face to face one day. Even were I to die tomorrow, I'm not going to be cut off. I'll see God. And I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that he can redeem even this. And that downward spiral, that that depth of darkness that Job was in for the first 15 chapters of this book or so, he is beginning to allow that glimmer of hope. Mm-hmm. And he's beginning to recognize God is his only firm foundation. Even though God is also his persecutor, he is his only hope to get out of this. 
And it started last week when, right. with the second round of, of questioning from the friends or the second round of, of declarations of the friends. And see, when he recognized all his friends were against him, he started to turn to, against them and towards God. And he started to recognize that God was his only hope out. And it's even growing even more this week. Yeah, he ends in verse uh, 28 through 29. He ends with, hey, guys, you'd better be careful. Right. Because if what you're saying is true, and what I'm saying is true, then guess what's coming for you? Yeah. You're, in essence. You are going to see judgment as well. Right. Right. Yeah. If what you're saying and that those who are evil and unrighteous reap judgment is true. And what I'm saying is true is that I am righteous. And then guess what? You're going to face the same thing I am. And that is, that's a profound uh, turn of the table for Job. He's calling out their hypocrisy. Yeah, he is. He is, which they frankly need called out. And uh, they pretty much ignore. <laughs> right. So, yeah, this week we're, we're beginning, he is on this downward spiral and there is this repeat, repeat, repeat of the, the, the record that's skipping and going over the same lines over and over and over again. But there's a, there's a new chord or a new tone now that's part of the, the music that's repeating. And it's growing into something that will become this huge symphony of God's response to Job. Mm-hmm. And it's this hope in God that Job is finding finally after all of that abject darkness. There's this light at the end of the tunnel. It's where he started too. When he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Mm. Yeah. And it's taken him a long time to get back to it, but he's finding his way back. Yeah, very slowly he is finding his way back. And and again, this book it so perfectly mimics the path of a person going through grief. Mm-hmm. The And just the amount of time that's spent in all of these dark areas. That's what going through grief is like. Mm-hmm. It doesn't end. It doesn't move on just because the topic needs to change. It cycles back around and goes back over it again and again and again. And that is the downward spiral. But here, last last week and this week, we're beginning to see that the spiral is beginning to... Get, some, get a silver lining? Get, yeah, to get a silver lining. And it's not going down quite as fast anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very quickly, it's going to skyrocket back up to the top. He is still on that spiral. But he's got hope now in the midst of the spiral. And that's one thing he that... Does. That's one thing that Nine Inch Nails never had in, in, their, in their music was this hope that you can come out of this downward spiral. Mm-hmm. So, and the only way to, to find that light in the midst of the darkness is to seek the God of life, to, to seek out his, his glory, his honor, and to recognize that even though he may be hurting you in the moment, he can still redeem your situation. So seek life. In all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. 
If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.